Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Hi there. Welcome, Welcome back. back. How are you, Hannah? Yeah, I'm all right. How are you? Good, thank you. We are still in lockdown in, in Scotland. Uh, I know that might not be the case for you, depending on where you are, but we are still in our respective houses, so doing this remotely as we did the last few episodes. Is lockdown treating you well? Uh, lockdown is treating me exactly the same. I think um, one thing I'm quite grateful for is that numbers are really low here. Numbers of, of coronavirus cases here are really low. Yeah. Um, so it means that that it's not quite so scary going out to the grocery store no. or whatever. But we we both have family in parts of the world where that is not true. So um, yes, it, you know we have we are very aware that for many of our listeners, um, it's a scary are, time. Things are particularly bad. So you know, hang in there, uh, obey the rules of wherever you are, wear face masks if you go outside. I don't think our listeners will need to be told that, but you know, still, I know. Yes. <laughs> Um, so what are we talking about today? Today, well, this is an ongoing topic. Not It's timely and yet it's not timely. Um, it feels like it's always timely. Uh, we are talking about uh, our whole reason for existence, the humanities. Yes, uh, always, always under threat, always being challenged. I remember um, having a chat with my supervisor around the time my PhD supervisor that is around the time I I was submitting and going on the job market and I was telling her that I was really worried that I'd never get work because you know the humanities are, are awful and there's there no jobs anywhere and she said yeah that's true but you know when I finished my PhD Thatcher was just getting going with with slashing all the humanities budgets so there were no jobs then any either and you know that's what I'm telling my students now yeah things are things are bad but things have always been bad uh and it has been a long time since as a broad set of disciplines that the humanities were not under stress to justify their existence. Yep. Um, and I guess that's part of what we are talking about today, about the politics of, of the humanities and feeling the need to justify their value, justify their existence and, and the logic that... that uh, uh, or, or the logic that that is based on, as it were. There, there are a number of sort of uh, fairly high-profile stories in the UK and around the world of humanities departments closing down, uh, budgets being being cut. So uh, the University of Portsmouth in, in, in uh, the UK has just announced that it's closing its English literature department. Um, who needs that? Who needs that? No one needs Who English. needs English yes. literature? Uh, the University of Dundee is cutting provision of German uh, studies to its first-year students, which, you know, cynics might say is a, a clever backdoor way to, to gut the degree because, of course, if students aren't allowed to take German in their first year, then they won't be allowed to take German in their subsequent years. So eventually the degree will disappear uh, if it's yeah, allowed if to start. if you cut the prerequisites. Yeah. Um, and, you know, 
in Brexit Britain, no one needs to study German anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, Australia, meanwhile, has announced massive uh, fee increases for humanities degrees, uh, specifically humanities degrees and not science degrees, uh, because the government is cutting subsidies for, for humanities degrees. Um, so it's it's a hard time to be in the humanities. Um, yes, yes, it is. Do you do you want to say a bit about how this works? How how you experience the difficulties? Because your your discipline is sort of halfway in the middle, right? Uh, yeah. How how do you experience the humanities from your vantage point? It is bizarre. I mean, lots of different, lots of different things. And I don't think you can say, I don't think you could say that geography has a, a kind of set or agreed upon take on the humanities. And I think even people in geography who lean towards the humanities and who apply for funding that's housed by um, humanities organizations would necessarily agree. But because geography sits across and I think it's one of the one of the last disciplines it's not the only one um, but it's one of the last disciplines in the UK that sits across the physical sciences the social sciences and the humanities you have an internal identity crisis that is endemic like it's it's part of the discipline and it's one of the ways that the discipline continues to reinvent itself and to reproduce itself is by having these debates about the relationship between the humanities and the physical sciences and geography. Um, so uh, some of the first people who were tweeting about the news about the Australian tuition fee decision were geographers that I work with. Um, so I came to the knowledge through people that are my colleagues and whose, whose work I know. So um, we, as a subset of geographers, feel quite personally attached to what happens with the humanities and to thinking, thinking about the world with a sort of humanities mindset. But at the same time, for the most part, like I I think I'm currently the only one in my department who has a liberal arts degree Mm. from a liberal arts college in the United States. Yeah. Um, A lot of people have MAs or BAs, Mm. um, but a lot of people also have BSCs, you know, technically degrees that are, are science degrees. So the the kind of liberal arts humanity sensibility is still kind of a rarity. It's kind of a weird thing in geography, even though there are people running around who are geographers slash artists, I mean, geographers the, the, slash poets. The liberal arts sensibility is stra- is is uh, uh, rare in Britain generally because yes. British degrees are so much more siloed sort of and that's 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 a characteristic that is beyond the humanities right whatever whatever subject you do the british degree is a is a shorter degree you typically don't do other subjects things are slightly different in scotland as opposed to england uh but even so i i don't think you could honestly describe a humanities degree in scotland as a liberal arts degree because no you, you sort of don't you you well yeah i mean i ha- remember having a conversation when i was still doing my phd with one of your colleagues in the english school in st andrews yeah. and we were talking about why we didn't have have an english geography option for joint honors yeah. because st andrews actually has joint honors basically in american speak means double major 
Um, but it's a bit more tracked and a bit more specific. You, a student has less control over the courses that they take generally. Um, but in St. Andrews, there's a relatively flexible approach to what's called joint honors, which basically means a double degree. You get a degree in two subjects. And students can generally joint honors, joint degree in most things that they might want to do. So there's, we have students in geography in in St. Andrews who do uh, classics and geography. It's rare, but it is done. So there is an appreciation, I think, but there were never any students who did geography in English, which given our friendship and given the things that brought us together, seems like a really organic combination. And we came to the conclusion that it was structural. It wasn't disciplinary. It was because the the first year courses all were scheduled at the same time. Exactly. That's why it is. Um, But to me, it's like if you you wanted to invest in it, if you wanted to think about English and geography as being a joint degree that a number of students would be interested in, and I think there would be uptake for it, you'd need to reschedule and re-timetable. Yeah, I mean, I I think, I mean, we are getting slightly sidetracked here, but I think the... It it the difference is where you place the emphasis, right? If mm-hmm. your emphasis is on how can I get expose my students to the widest possible array of subjects and modules, then you would restructure your university based along those lines. Yes. If your if your uh, guiding principle, if your emphasis is teaching has to happen within schools, then Anything, any interdisciplinary uh, uh, measure that you want to bring in is superimposed onto that underlying structure of the. This is an English module that takes place within an English department, the School of English, and any student who isn't studying English has to be accommodated as as is as best as can be as as is possible depending on room timetable and 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 all of those uh 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 constrictions but the 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 liberalness of the liberal arts if you like is always secondary over the structural way in which teaching is organized pretty much in any british university um the thing is though yeah. geography pitches itself not just to students on degree programs but also to itself in research and in conferences as disciplinarily different and philosophically different. Geography pitches itself as you can do it all here. You can have, and basically, so it, it has now kind of, it recently, you know, has started selling itself as the discipline to tackle climate change. Yeah. Um, Because it can bring together all of these different disciplinary modes of thinking within a geography program or within a geography where you see that in action is at uh or or at least you did maybe six or seven years ago i haven't been back for for a few years but the uh biannual cultural studies association conference the, the association of cultural studies conference which is called crossroads uh because cultural studies sort of does or used to do something similar except Mm -hmm. it lost itself as a discipline, right? There are hardly any cultural studies departments around. So when you go to cultural studies conferences, there are people doing cultural studies work in all sorts of different 
departments. They've academics have had to find a home for themselves in in other departments. So, like you know, if there were lots of cultural studies departments, I might fit better depending based on my work in a cultural studies department than an English department. But you know, you you find your home where you can. And if you, as I said, sort of certainly five or six years ago, some of the most interesting cultural studies work was happening in geography departments. Mm-hmm. Uh, because geography is doing what cultural studies did, you know, 30 years ago or whatever, um, it, which is to pitch itself as this cross, cross-disciplinary discipline, as it were. That yeah. That is a, a, a home where pretty much anything can be studied. Yeah, and geography is relatively old discipline. Yeah. Compared to its similar cognate disciplines. It's certainly much older than cultural studies. Of course. Um, and it is very colonial yeah. in its yeah. history. Yeah. Um, so it's it's relatively well established. But at the same time, having said that, geography used to be a really well established discipline in North America and doesn't really exist yeah. in the same way at all anymore. Yeah. It exists in Britain in a very different, unique way. Um, but I think what's really interesting about why I went I went to geography because the arts and humanities are relatively protected structurally because they're subsidized in geography departments by all the other stuff that goes on, the kind of diversity of research interests and the diversity of uh, practice lends itself quite well to bringing in funding from lots of different sources. And people are quite, willing to let you kind of get on with yourself even if they have no idea what it is that you do so geographers don't speak the same language um and and in any department you go to there will be people who don't understand or philosophically or politically agree with what you do to a large extent i remember you quite a long time ago having a chat with you where you were saying how geography doesn't have a disciplinary canon there Mm -hmm. isn't a, a list of set texts that everyone accepts that geographers need to read. Yeah, there isn't yeah. one. And in fact, what's more interesting is that is the debates that certain departments will have about what canon they want to create. Yeah, yeah. And it and those debates can be really heated and sometimes mm. sometimes really unpleasant. Um and I remember being welcomed into geography by my PhD supervisor um because he said, you know, we're going to put together you know, reading lists for you to yeah. get a kind of comprehensive take on what you need, but you will not ever read a kind of core geography canon. Yeah. yeah. It's, that's not how geography works. Yeah. And he said in, in many ways, it means that you can come in and be a successful imposter in yeah. a geography department, yeah. but it's also sometimes disorientating for people who are not used to the flexibility and uh, lack of disciplinary structure. So do you, f- I, I mean, I can, I can talk about my experience in an English department in a second, but it, as a person who identifies as a humanities scholar, do you feel under threat in, in geography in, in this, in the same sense, do you have to justify your existence uh, as, as humanities broadly seem to have to do at the moment? All the time. Um, yeah, all the time. Yeah. Uh, especially if such that this is like really boring kind of um, history, but basically a number of years, a few years ago, 
um, when, and I think it, it kind of comes alongside the marketization of higher education that we've talked about previously, um, kind of early 2000s, it, it really takes off, um, that geography was reorganized as part of bigger university reorganizing processes where disciplines were like cut in half and moved into separate schools. And there was a kind of reorganization for, for monetary reasons, for kind of best ways to target funding and best ways to create teaching programs that students will pay money for, that kind of thing. Um, and geography went one of two ways, basically. Some departments created a separate geography, sustainability, environment type school that was potentially housed in a bigger structure around social sciences or whatever. And others entered earth science and geosciences schools that were housed under a physical sciences and engineering structure. And the way that a, a, an individual academic's career path progresses through a physical sciences college versus a social sciences college is fundamentally different. So your life is affected very much by this bigger university administrative or bureaucratic structure. I have experienced both. And in fact, um, have been in departments that have reorganized while I've been there and have reimagined the structure as I was there in real time. Yeah. And it's a really fascinating thing to see because the debate is existential. Yeah. It's a, it is existential and it, a lot of it revolves around core values of the members of the departments yeah. and what they see as being important and where they see their own personal value. And that is tied, of course, to how people present themselves to funders. It's tied to how they present themselves at conferences. It's tied to the work that they do, but it's also really, really personal. Yeah. And being a kind of humanities scholar in an overwhelmingly geosciences environment is basically like speaking a language that a lot of other people don't understand yeah. or that people will have a spectrum of understanding of. So some people will have more knowledge of it. Some people will have less some people will have kind of some knowledge about certain aspects, but not others. And you have to gauge at every point, you know, what do I have to justify here? What about what I do or who I am needs justification or explanation here? Because it changes. Yeah. But what's consistent is the humanities and the arts are constantly at the forefront of my mind. Yeah. And that aspect of my work is constantly at the forefront of my mind because it's not just where I go for funding and how much funding I'm eligible for. Yeah. It's also, how do you structure a, a course? How do you, how do you encourage a student to write a dissertation that looks like a humanities dissertation and not a social science dissertation? They're yeah. two very different formulas yeah, and two very different structures. And so there's a constant sort of, um, introspection that yeah. goes on that I never experienced in departments that were all kind of humanities people. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that that the the last point you made is 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 certainly closer to my experience where we we it's almost like I'm trying to find, think of the best way to phrase this. It's almost like there is an assumption that 
we will not be able to justify our existence if it was really asked of us we being being the english depart- being english literature as a discipline uh, and more more specifically the school of english in, in the university of st andrews so what we rely on is the fact that based on the few metrics that we have available to us such as ref and whatever that we do okay and that we don't cost as much yeah um and and that yeah. is that is how we justify ourselves because and and there is a there is a kind of complacency behind that because we don't we perhaps don't acknowledge as often as we should do that we that there is a level of privilege um that we have that some other humanities departments don't in fact the portsmouth story of the university of portsmouth closing its english department is actually quite rare because in the scheme of things in the in the raft of humanities departments closing down actually english departments tend to close down less often mm-hmm. and there is a there is at least a, a part of the story that has to do with a kind of inherent justification in the minds of you know unthinking patriotic heritage culture type thing where like you know a british a british university if it was truly british should be teaching shakespeare right which gives us a a a, a level of protection that most obviously modern languages departments don't have so yeah. if so if you compare these two otherwise quite cognate disciplines english and modern languages uh modern languages are so much more threatened than english is um but it's a it's a matter of degree because ultimately all of us uh in the humanities have to have to find a way of earning the value that we claim we have because we yes. don't have it uh from the off as it were it is something that has to be justified it is something that has to be earned yes exactly and that's this exists across scale which i think is ultimately what our argument today is that that justification and that continuous process of having to to demonstrate that you deserve recognition that you deserve funding that you deserve to be published that you deserve to be accredited to teach students is not something that is required equally across the board discipline wise nor is it required equally across the board at an individual level and there is sometimes this come these two scales come up against each other so there's tensions that exist within the humanities and and i think one of the we did have an episode a long time ago about the treatment of universities in the media and yeah. news media yeah and this is one of the ways actually that that the the skepticism and distrust in the the kind of in public mainstream discourse about universities especially harms the humanities um and we'll, i guess we'll, we'll get to starkey won't we oh, well, it's inevitable <laughs> it's inevitable but we might what, have to explain um, starkey to our non-british listeners because i don't know how it yeah. is quite british he is quite british isn't yeah. he yeah but the um i think the the overall sort of discussion around the humanities is 
has been tied with, you know, and, and critics have always said this, you know, from the eighties and you alluded to it, right. When you're talking about your PhD supervisor, talking about Thatcher and cutting humanities departments, you know, it is, it's, it goes back to that process where a neoliberal ideology about what education is for and who education is for the humanities aren't, um, discursively constructed because I think in reality, this isn't actually the case. I think, I think in reality, it's, it's not this, but in the ideology and the fantasy of neoliberal marketization ideology, the humanities don't generate profit. Yeah. And they certainly don't generate profit for the individual students who study the humanities and then go out and join the labor force. Yes. So having an English degree or having a history degree or having a classics degree doesn't make any money for you. Yeah. And therefore, because it doesn't generate profit for you, it doesn't have any noticeable or tangible impact on the economy. And if you're prioritizing the economy as a as an abstract concept, as part of as as the underlying explanation for why you have education, you can create a and it is a myth. You can create a myth that the humanities are not of value. Yeah. Either from an economic perspective or from a sort of personal perspective, yeah. an individual enrichment perspective, because yes. enrichment and and personal growth and development become neoliberal. They become yeah. about generating income rather than and living a good life rather than practicing a craft or doing an art or whatever. Yeah. And so this underlying ideology that's never spoken in quite such clear terms, but is, is enacted continues through the nineties yeah. and the early two thousands, the concurrent process, which we're, we're not really talking, we're not focusing on STEM today. Mm. Um, we could, but we're not. Um, the, the shift of course, is that STEM subjects get a, a, Influx of cash. Yeah. Um, STEM is invest, you know, invested heavily in, and departments and universities are rewarded for creating big, massive STEM research units. Um, and the the discussion there is always around how STEM promotes industry, and how STEM is industry, and so an industry generates profit. Um, in reality, of course, this isn't the the case. Yeah. In terms of funding, it's much messier than that. Yes. Um, but that's the, the kind of overall myth. Yeah. And then eventually you get to the point where an, an academic, because we are, our identities and our existence as human beings are tied very closely to the work that we do. Yeah. Our, yours and my value as, as like, physical human bodies and his brains on a stick yeah. is directly attached to the work that we do. Yeah. We, the, the onus gets put on us as individuals to say, well, this is why my work matters. Exactly. Yeah. This is why my colleagues work yes. matters. Yes. This is why the work my students are learning how to do matters. Yes. And it's not matters in a kind of ethical moral sense. That no. doesn't, no. that's not really up for debate here. It's assumed that that ethical moral sense is about, Profit and yeah. value. Yeah. So one of the ways in which, uh, or one of the terms that this has spawned is transferable skills. Oh, yeah. Right? So it doesn't matter. It's, it's well, it's not that it doesn't matter, but it, it's okay if 
you your degree that you are giving to a student that a student is earning their degree by studying under you it's okay if that degree doesn't immediately lead to a vocation right so we've accepted that not all subjects are law or medicine or whatever but you have to demonstrate what the what are the skills that you've picked up along the way that you could transfer to the the marketplace of the workforce right so um when you are uh um if you're teaching english it is not enough to say that i'm teaching my students to read critically i i'm teaching my students to to figure out what is apparently happening here and what is really happening here that isn't enough what i have to say is through studying english through doing a degree in english my students are learning how to uh acquire and process a large amount of data because <laughs> and solve problems and solve problems um and you know learn how to write sentences or or whatever it might be um uh, yeah because the second set of skills are skills that can be monetized and that yep. that is where what what the logic ultimately is in terms of uh earning earning the the right to exist earning the right to exist as valuable human beings in the in the university marketplace as it were yeah and that assumption that that is connected directly to you being a valuable human being in the wider marketplace yeah and th- this is really insidious it's really insidious for quite scary reasons scholars who have for many many years sociologists education scholars have known unequivocally that a person's life chances code for earning potential yeah. are have basically nothing to do with the degree that you get from whichever university it has everything to do with your the socioeconomic economic status of your family yeah that you are your your the potential for you to reproduce the socioeconomic status of your family is far greater yeah. if you are already of that social class for yes. cultural reasons for social reasons for economic reasons yes it has very little to do with the degree that you get or yeah. the subject that you study yeah and this is known this yeah. has been known for decades. Yes. This is the underlying emphasis of a lot of ed reform in the US. Yes. The idea is about changing social class, yes. upward creating yeah. upwardly mobile yeah. individuals. Yeah. And that not because it's common knowledge among quite a lot of scholars and other commentators and activists and pol- policymakers is what makes this so scary. Yeah. Because no one is saying it, you know, in any sort of mainstream sense the humanities aren't the problem yeah it's the type of it's the the type of opportunities that are available to kids yeah. that are applying and getting into and attending Portsmouth yeah. University yeah right yeah as opposed to i'm going to say it i'm going to say it oxbridge <laughs> yes or st andrews or st andrews or, or the edinburgh. university of edinburgh yeah um I, I'm just following on from that. I think you were saying something really interesting. We, we sort of um, uh, referred to it in passing when we name dropped Starkey, but 
this idea that some people have to earn value and other people have can can embody value uh yes and and this this the the underlying research that you're pointing to about uh the single biggest factor in terms of maximizing earning potential is your social economic background and your family's social economic background that is ultimately about this idea of embodying value right yep so do you want to say a bit more about how that works mm what we mentioned in our higher education and race episode that it, it's it's not an accident it's not a conspiracy but it's not an accident yeah. that auditing exercises become mainstream and central in the higher education sector yeah. when the ivory tower is opened up yeah both for critique but also for opportunities yeah opportunities are made for people who are traditionally excluded yeah. from higher education and it's not an accident that scholars have to justify spending more and more time and more yeah. and more money and more and more intellectual effort justifying why their research matters yeah why their papers are four star why their books yeah. are four star why their university department continues to be worthy of government funding as the scholars themselves change demographics yeah so the the need to justify why you exist didn't exist for people who whose existence was taken for granted yes and that is all about imbuing certain people with inherent value yeah. versus potential or earned value yeah. and it is you know it, it it has very much to do with identity, but it's not just identity, right? It's not about self-expression. It's not about self-identification. It's yeah. about structural identification processes, right? Yeah. David Starkey, mm. classic case. David Starkey is a professor of history at which one? Uh, I can never remember. Some prestigious college at Oxbridge. One of the, it's either Oxford or Cambridge. I can never remember. Uh, but he's um he's venerable which yes. is of course a, a common euphemism here in the uk for uh elderly he had an honorary fellowship at fitzwilliam college cambridge cambridge he was, yes he was until 2015 a visiting professor of the university of kent uh, okay yeah. So he's, but he's, he's very high profile. Yes. He's interviewed as part of documentaries. He's, um, he writes material for a popular audience. A lot of British people recognize David Starkey, either the name or his face or his voice yes. when he speaks. Yes. He's a, he is a public intellectual. I don't, I don't think he has the kind of platform that, other public intellectuals have in Britain, but the dude is famous compared yeah. to, you know, a lot of professors we work with. Yes. yes. And he has for the last kind of 15 years, I want to say something like that. There have been moments where students, um, other critics, other academics have expressed concern about his views um, and his research and his work, particularly around his views 
on race. Yeah. And recently he made the news again. He was doing an interview, a, a Zoom interview or something, a video interview with a young conservative. I don't know what he is. People are calling him a, a commentator or something. Yeah. He's just a young conservative dude who got famous from Brexit. Yeah. A guy named Darren Grimes. And Starkey used, um, I won't repeat it because it's pretty awful and you can Google it if you want to find it. But he used um, really cruel and offensive language uh, to describe black people in Britain, black people in the United States, black communities generally, people who are the descendants of uh, people who were forcibly enslaved and who were forcibly moved from their homes. Um. And it was, it's, the language is deeply offensive. And I think what's really interesting about this is a lot of people, you know, have written about the fact that they've brought this up before. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is certainly not the first time he's said extremely horrendously racist stuff on TV. And he has always got away with it. Uh, Sort of. Perhaps until now, but even now, I, I mean, I'm I'm yet to be convinced that there is any real kind of material consequence to his action. His books will still sell; he'll still get to make TV programs and so on and so forth. Uh, yeah. yeah, and it's and because his his value is divorced from the things that he says. Yes. So he he's imbued with and embodies himself uh, an essential value. Yes. That is an amalgam of his his race identity, his gender identity, his class identity, very much so, and his his background, the work that he's done, the labor he's done, and the degrees that he has. Yes, and those things all work together to create the embodiment of a of a person whose whose opinions are worth listening to and debating and engaging with simply because they come from him. Yes. And the same work, and, and you know, I'm, he has done work in labor and he has got got degrees and he has, he is, he has done research. He has put the work in, but the same amount of work put in by a woman of color wouldn't give her the same unquestioned position of authority and value. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And and her authority and value isn't seen it's seen as something fundamentally different. Yes. Her authority and value have to at every stage be reevaluated. Yes. I remember I might have I might have mentioned this before because it's a um it's a particular moment in a book that really, really um made an impression on me. Um uh, mm-hmm. there's a, a a very short but brilliant book called Race Matters by Cornel West. And at in that book, he talks, uh, he talks about a, a particular moment when uh, he and his wife were driving into New York City. And at, but they had to go to different places. So his wife uh, took the car, drove them in, dropped him off, and his wife went off to do whatever she needed to do. And he was standing on the sidewalk waiting for, trying to hail a cab. And of course, no cab would stop. Yep. And he talks about this moment and he says, 
it doesn't matter how much privilege you have acquired, both in terms of class and in terms of you know profession. So you can be a, a professor at an elite university. You can have uh, you know celebrity and fame and wealth to an extent, and all of these things. But society always retains the right to reduce you to just another black man. Yeah, and it's that that's that's the difference between having to constantly justify your value versus embodying it right um whatever happens whether david starkey is quote-unquote cancelled or not he will always embody that value as a white man who can demonstrate his erudition yeah and there's a class element here as well that is um it has a particular british inflection to it yes um that which is where you know, intersectionality comes into play because, you know, lots of kids at University of Portsmouth who would want maybe want to do an English degree wouldn't necessarily share Starkey's class background. Yes. And you would see a different life trajectory or different opportunities made available. And, but there's a, and we don't want to equate, right? Because this is, we're talking about kind of individual opportunity and individual, um, individual value as it's kind of recognized or or um uh, granted structurally or systemically but the disciplines also have a similar there's this there's a a mirroring that goes on where science and scientific departments and scientific disciplines particularly um the really um, lucrative ones have an essential value. Yeah. They are granted an essential value that by their very existence, they matter. Yes. So that it doesn't matter who's doing them. Somebody could be a mediocre or a shitty scientist, but the science itself still matters. Yes. The humanities do not have that intrinsic essential value. Yes. They're not they're not given or granted that intrinsic essential value. They have to constantly at each stage, each project, each publication, each iteration has to be assessed on its own terms. Yeah. And when when the humanities try to try to claim an intrinsic value of the of the type that science does it always falls flat and looks ridiculous because that it's it's a no win game for the humanities the value of the human and you know we are not obviously for a moment saying the humanities don't have value but we are saying that the humanities will never be able to justify its existence using the logic of neo- neoliberalism because that is not the game that it can win. So yeah. one of the ways in that that one of the very recent it has only you know it's happened uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, measures of as a as a as a discipline as a set of disciplines uh, an attempt to rebrand the humanities has been made by the British Academy in in in, in Britain, um, which is to launch what it's calling shape. Uh, SHAPE stands for Social Sciences, Humanities and the Arts for People and the Economy. Um, 
there's something we could may, maybe do an, another episode one day about neoliberalism and acronyms. There's something about yeah. neoliberalism <laughs> loves acronyms for some reason. So shape is clearly designed to come up against and compete with STEM. You know, that's the so STEM has a longer history: science, technology, engineering, and management, uh, engineering and math. Sorry, uh, which and, and humanities. The powers that be within the humanities, within the British Academy, looked at STEM and said, "We need something similar to compete." Except when you do that, you take away what really matters about the humanities, and by taking away what really matters about the humanities, by taking away the 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 critical approach to studying culture, by taking away the you know the the enjoyment and pleasure that comes from enjoying from performing culture producing culture consuming culture to if if you take away all of that what you're left with is this sort of hollowed out shell you know the the uh, a set of words evacuated of meaning to use Stuart Hall's phrase so I'm just reading from the the shape website um uh shape subjects teach us to analyze interpret create communicate and collaborate with rigor clarity and energy crucial skills for to get for today and together with stem subjects they help us make innovation work harder for the benefit of everyone at the same time they bring color texture opinion and perspective to our everyday it's meaningless none of these <laughs> words mean anything right there is a, a a poster which goes the shape of then the shape of now the shape of if the shape of when i mean it could be a private eye story like not none of this means anything I know the geographer in me is horrified at the mixing up of the spatial and the temporal metaphor, but, <laughs> but it's and and you know I feel bad because I like the British Academy as an institution. I, I I personally owe it a lot, and it's not really the fault of the British Academy per se, but it's no. it's it just shows that. If we are going to defend the humanities, we can't afford to defend the humanities on their terms, on the terms of ne- the neoliberal marketization of academia, because we will never win that game. They are better at it than we are. Uh, we need to find different ways of justifying our existence, different ways of uh, pointing to what is really worth doing about the humanities. Because whatever it is, it isn't this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the internal conundrums that a lot of the humanities has, I mean, the humanities is really, really diverse. And we haven't, we haven't gotten into the fact that the humanities is in many ways invested in maintaining a status quo, a neoliberal status quo. Um, but a lot of the most radical and progressive ways of thinking about the world have come out of the humanities yes or the the connection between a humanity sensibility and quantitative mathematical reasoning yes you know marx did a bunch of equations and used moral philosophy yeah. to come up with a critique of capitalism right that yes. the humanities are the home of paradigm shifts yes and the concept of a paradigm shift you know <laughs> was a scientist yeah. coming in his own time yeah <laughs> to the concept of philosophy so 
the but the the fundamental problem there is that the, a lot of the humanities value yeah is a direct challenge to the status quo yes and so the state has a problem yes the state has a problem because the state wants to maintain itself and to continue to produce a neoliberalism that can reproduce itself yes but the state also wants well-rounded citizens and a cultural economy yeah and and the humanities are very difficult to contain and discipline yes you know it's it's a really it's it's an impossible project yes. essentially yes. and the Brit- it's not an accident that the british academy sits adjacent to the state yes it's a private organization yeah. that in in many ways is a charitable organization yeah. you know it's it it wields quite a bit of economic power but at the same time they do a lot of work yeah. to redistribute wealth yes. you know yes so it's I think, yeah, we have a real issue because we're embedded in these massive institutions and we are actors for the state. You know, we're public servants, essentially. Our jobs are government jobs. And our work is essentially telling the government that they're bad at what they do. And they shouldn't exist. (laughs) Yeah, or they shouldn't exist in the the form that they exist now. And... You know, try rebranding that. Yeah. <laughs> um, probably a good time to end. Yeah. Uh, let us know what you think. Uh, let us know your experiences of the humanities. Um, and be safe. Look after yourself and those around you, wherever you are. And we will catch you next week. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichaudhvi. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be?